So take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 13. I am highly uncomfortable this morning because I have this thing in my hand. Um, don't not used to speaking, preaching from this, but this is necessary for you this morning um, because my cough button is... So if I have that thing, you know, attached to me, it's hard to get away from it. So I'm going to try to remember to do that. Um, I've also got a pocket full of uh, cough drops, so you'd rather hear that clanging around in my mouth than, than coughing all morning. But God is good. So um, all the power, all the glory, I will trust in his name. That's quite a declaration, isn't it? That's easy to sing. But I believe that when we truly behold him, that becomes our posture. We feel pressed all the time by the circumstances around us. We are profoundly impacted by the brokenness of sin every moment. And by the way, when I say that, I don't just mean the sin out there. The sin in here, too. We are profoundly impacted by it. And we often feel the squeeze of that. Compelling us to react in ways that may not line up with what God has revealed. But in the moment, they feel necessary. Anybody with me? But either we believe that. Or we don't. And I think that for many of us, and I'm speaking of us in our culture, particularly evangelical Christianity in the West, I think that we want to find a middle ground. It's not that we want to reject that, but we want to embrace that because we want God to bless us. But I don't want to embrace that statement in every moment of my life when constantly he is compelling me to do things that feel contrary to what I want to do. And my fear is that Christianity in our context is less about Christ and more about what Christ can do for us. God laid me out first of this week. I was so sick and just pretty good. And he did it purposefully because he needed to deal with my heart. I was preaching a passage this week that he wanted me to be careful that I didn't first see how it applied to me and should convict me. And I realized laying still for two days as best I could that I'm all too often guilty of that. You see, suffering isn't just about when persecution comes and when sickness comes. Suffering should be a daily reality for those who follow Christ because moment by moment he has called us to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. And guys, can we just be honest with each other enough today to say that that is suffering because I want to do what I want to do? But that is the heart of the gospel. That is the heart of faith. Faith is me following what he has said, rather than what I feel is right. 
And so my daily experience in following Christ should be one of suffering, but it is not. And I had come to be so indoctrinated by the things around me that I only thought that suffering applied to health issues and persecution. God wanted to remind me or let me know at the first of this week, you don't know the gospel like you think you do. And then I was able to get up off the couch and get into 1 Samuel 13. (laughs) Okay, God. I know many of you shared the grief that I felt this week when it was announced that Tim Keller had died. Tim Keller was formative for me. Not only in understanding the scriptures better, but he was a model for me. And I think that he was a model for me in a season where I really needed a model to look to. God provided him as that model to be able to look at him. Here's the thing about Tim Keller that I loved is that Tim Keller was at first a pastor. And the way that he dealt with things in the public, he always dealt with them as a shepherd to his church that he was called to shepherd first. In the heart of one of the most difficult cities to live and pastor on earth. And he did that faithfully for decades. What a powerful testimony. Here is what I love about Tim Keller is that no matter how many people try to pull him away and make him into something they thought he ought to be, Tim Keller was never controlled by his circumstances. Why? If you listen to Tim Keller, if you read Keller, you're going to see that he is always drawing us back to the storyline of the Bible. He's always drawing us back to behold this God who is sovereign and in control. Behold God's will that is perfect and unthwarted. And because of that, he didn't have to let his emotions match the moment. Tim Keller, more than anybody else that has ever influenced me, I believe, believed more in the durability of the gospel. He believed the gospel was durable. He believed that God wins. I love that about him. Over the last little while, maybe nobody has spent more time with him outside of his family than Colin Hansen, who's been writing his biography. I know some of you are reading that currently. Colin Hansen wrote an article the day that, of Keller's passing, and he writes this. And I'm going to read a, a little bit of it, so bear with me. <laughs> Tim Keller shared the gospel boldly in the idioms of his day. If you've been in our evangelism class, that should ring with you, right? He wants to communicate the gospel in a meaningful way. So he sought to communicate the gospel in a meaningful way. He shared the gospel boldly in the idioms of his day without demeaning or demanding anything but faith and trust in our faithful, trustworthy Savior. Keller centered um, on the gospel of Jesus, which fills Christians with humility and hope, meekness and boldness in a unique way, he wrote. Colin Hansen writes, Keller's final task, the great unfinished project he left to us, was charting a course for mission in the 21st century West, that's us, that bore scant resemblance to the middle-class context in Allentown, Pennsylvania, where he grew up in the 1950s. 
He followed Leslie Newbigin, who was a missiologist, who identified the post-Christian West as the most resistant, challenging missionary frontier of all time. I say amen to Leslie Newbigin. Hansen continues to write, as many Americans began to shift their social and political tactics in 2016, Keller came under increased criticism and scrutiny from fellow evangelicals. But anyone who followed his work over the decades could see that it was not he who, who had changed. Despite the increased criticism in all our personal conversations, Hansen writes, I cannot recall a, a hearing a single critical comment from him directed toward a fellow believer. Hansen was his friend for decades. And he can say that he never heard that out of Keller's mouth. His steadiness under this growing hostility gave courage and comfort to younger leaders who became disillusioned by the fall of so many of our former heroes. Listen to what he writes. Even I worried uncovering flattering secrets when I began to write his biography. Instead, talking to dozens of Keller's closest friends and family members who knew him from childhood only confirmed my personal experience of him. You see, here's the truth about Tim Keller. He was a man who had become increasingly aligned with the reality of God and his will. Tim Keller was not a perfect man. There was plenty there to disagree with, plenty there to discuss, plenty there to push back on. But Tim Keller was faithful. And he was faithful to what he felt like was the call of the Christian. And that was to pursue Christ and make him known. And Keller never allowed his circumstances to dictate his response. What a beautiful example for us. Last week, Gerald gave three application points as he closed his sermon with us. See if you remember them. One, fear the Lord was the first one. Second, serve the Lord faithfully. And the third one was don't forget. Fear the Lord, serve the Lord faithfully, and don't forget. What happens when a leader fails at all three? Well, that question is answered for us in 1 Samuel 13 today. As we will say, we will see Saul fail at all three of these points. But brothers and sisters, here's the truth. If you fail at number one, you will fail at number two and number three. And it is entirely possible for us to think that we are doing great things for God because we're participating in the, in the, um, in the sacred rituals. And so outwardly, everybody thinks that we're doing big things for God, but inwardly in our lives, we do not care what the, word, what the Lord even has to say. We're not seeking Him. We're not walking in Him. And that's the picture of what we see Israel's king today in Saul, is that he was willing to practice the overt rituals, but he was not seeking the Lord in all things. Psalm 14.1 says this, The fool says in his heart there is no God. When I read that for most of us, an atheist comes to mind who has said there is no God. But the truth is we declare that every time we live as if God doesn't exist. And when we try to live as if God doesn't exist, that is the definition of foolishness. And that's what defined this king today that we refer to today as the foolish king. So let's pray and then we'll begin to work through this passage together. So, Father, help us today. 
Indeed, we always need your help. And we thank you for the gift of your word. God, what a tremendous and gracious and merciful gift you've given us. Revealing yourself to us, God. Father, help us to revere your word today. To lean in, to want to hear hear you in it. But thank you for the gift of your spirit that helps us in applying your word and interpreting your word. And indeed, we pray that he would help us with that task today. And God, I pray that your spirit also would give us ears to hear. Lord, help us to be people who desire more than anything else to behold God. To behold him seated on his throne. And Lord, that would be at the forefront of our minds, even as we see the circumstances around us that seem like shifting sand. That seems so chaotic and bring anxiety to our hearts so quickly. Oh God, would you help us to strive to be faithful people moment by moment. God, help us to get a glimpse for what real faith is today. Help us to get a glimpse today for what real courage is. God, we thank you for your word today. Speak to our hearts. Help us to respond. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I grew up in East Tennessee, and so my dad would always have the radio on a station where we would hear from Paul Harvey every day. Anybody else grow up with Paul Harvey? Paul Harvey was um, famous for saying what? The rest of the story. That's right. He would tell a story and kind of draw you in, and then he would let you know the rest of the story that you didn't understand, and you needed to understand that to get the whole story, right? So today we're going to do First uh, Samuel 13, Paul Harvey style, okay? <coughs> we're going to just read through the chapter, And we're going to hear what the story says. Okay, so that's the story. (coughs) And then number two in the notes, we're going to go back through it and we're going to see maybe what our natural inclination is. What is our natural reaction to this story? How might we we usually hear this and want to react to what we hear? And then number three, we will hear the rest of the story. And that third time through, we are going to, by God's grace and through his help this morning, see through spiritual eyes. How should we understand the goings-on of 1 Samuel 13 when we understand what's going on spiritually with God's plan? Okay? So that's the plan. Okay? Everybody with me? Let's go. Just reading through it first. First, in verses 1 through 2, we're going to see that Saul creates a standing army. We know up until this point, Saul has kind of just shifted around. He's not really been a man of action. Right? He's not done too much. Okay, Saul, what are you going to do? When are you going to take action? Right? God has called you out to deliver his people from the Philistines, and the Philistines are still there, and you're not doing much. But we see that he all of a sudden kind of becomes a man of action right here. Look at verses 1 and 2. Saul lived for one year and then became king, and when he had reigned for two years over Israel. Now stop. Anybody else find that weird? Uh, We start with just some really difficult stuff here, okay? Um, and the ideas of what's going on in this verse are varied. Um, certainly we know that Saul was greater than one years old, yeah? Um, he's got a son who's old enough to lead people into battle. We're going to see that, okay? Um, Saul's already been reigning probably over a year. We know that it's over a year. So what in the world is going on with the text? <coughs> Two possibilities. I'm not going to go real deep into either one of them. Number one, it's just one of these textual uh, places where some Roman numerals have been left off. Some number has been left off, and we get a different number than what ought to be there. Some of those exist. Okay, So we don't know. Maybe that's the case, and we just don't have all the information. The other thing is, some people say, no, it's written exactly as it's supposed to sound. Um, most kings become a king because they are born into 
uh, a royal line to be a king. Saul wasn't. So it's as if Saul, as a king, was born a year ago. And so for a year, he has reigned, and his, the totality of his reign is two years up until the point that Samuel is going to say no more. I don't know which is going on here, okay? I don't know that it's terribly important other than to know that from the starting place of Saul's reign, it's been over a year, okay? We'll come back to that in a few minutes. Look at verse 2. <coughs> Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash, the hill country of, of Bethel. And a thousand were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. So Saul goes through the rank and file of all the men in Israel, and he chooses uh, out 3,000 that he thinks are worthy. He sends everybody else home. Now, he doesn't just say, y'all aren't going to fight. He just sends them home to stay, be on standby. You're in the reserves, okay? We're going to put a standing army together of 3,000 men. I'm going to keep 2,000 with me. 1,000 is going to go with Jonathan. Everybody else, every other man go home. And when the trumpet sounds, you be, you be sure to, to respond to it. Next, next we see Jonathan takes action. And his action is going to re, uh, lead to reactions. Look at verses 3 through 7. Jonathan defeated the garrisons of the Philistines that was at Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops, like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon, when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and the people, all the people followed him trembling. Now, I don't know why Jonathan took action. Nobody does. It doesn't seem to be the case that Saul handed down orders to Jonathan. I think that the text would tell us that. I think Jonathan simply took the gumption to do it. Okay, you've given me a thousand men. We're going to go do something. And they went and took care of this garrison of Philistines. Now, what's interesting is this garrison of Philistines is the same garrison of Philistines over a year ago that Samuel had told Saul, as king, you do something about them. And here it is over a year later, and Saul has not done anything about it yet. They're still occupying God's people. And so Jonathan gets these thousand troops and he just decides to go into battle. He decides to do something, but his actions have reactions. How do you think the Philistines react to this? Not well. The Israelites now are a stink in their nostrils. They're, they're mad. They're angry. So they're mustering up these troops. Now there's some question as to whether these troop counts here are accurate because this is enormous army. But one thing we know about the Philistines all the way through the scriptures is there's never ending People in the Philistine line. Every time we hear about the Philistines, there's always myriad upon myriad of them. So we don't know. But one thing we do know for sure, they're mounting up troops and it far exceeds what Israel has. So Jonathan takes action and that leads to reactions. Verses 8 through 12, we're going to see a hard-pressed king, Saul. He's forced to make a decision. In verse 8, we waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Saul said, bring the burnt offerings here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came 
And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? What have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Don't you love that? I forced myself, Saul says. So the king is hard pressed, right? This, this army is mustering itself. Israel has some army, but what are we going to do? In the meantime, well, you're going to wait. And when the waiting is complete, I've got to make a decision. The seven days are up. What am I going to do? So he offers this offering. But then we see after that that the prophet confronts the king. Look at verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. So we see that the prophet confronts Samuel. He calls him out. He calls him foolish. He tells him that his dynasty is is done. There will be no dynasty. There will be no legacy. It's been removed from you. So we see a harsh rebuke from the prophet And then finally, we see that the nation prepares for battle (coughs) and we see that they are woefully outnumbered. They're woefully outflanked and they're woefully outgunned. Read with me to the end of the passage there. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah to the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beth Horon. And another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines had uh, said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge uh, was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any but the people of, any of the people of Saul uh, except for Saul and Jonathan. They had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. So we see here that the people are woefully outnumbered. We've already seen that. They're woefully outflanked. Now, as Saul has waited with his army, they have had free reign to get the high ground where they wanted to be. They've sent out raiders to cut off roads and to do what they needed to do (coughs) for their strategic positioning. And so they are massively outflanked and they are outgunned. All of the people have just beat together farm equipment to go out into battle against them. Who of you would... Jump at the chance to fight in Israel's army. Well, let's look at our natural reaction. What would be our natural reaction through this passage in chapter 13? (coughs) First, this young king is finally taking some action. It's almost as if we should applaud Saul at the beginning of this. Finally, he's getting the point. You know, maybe he's kind of settling into this. Maybe he's maturing a little bit. (coughs) Maybe he is 
getting to the point where he understands what he needs to do in order to follow the Lord. He's, he's taking some action. But we continue to see some flaws here, don't we? We see here in this passage, JT's going to like this, the very definition of tooting your own horn. Right? Did you like that? I thought you would. So Jonathan goes into battle, and he wins this, this skirmish over this garrison of Philistines, which isn't a huge military victory, but he still leads them to do what God had commanded to do. He has overcome this Philistine garrison and kicked them out, so they're no longer occupying their territory. And what does Saul do? He, he blows the horn, and what does he pronounce to everybody in Israel? Saul has won the victory. <coughs> One commentator said, that's just the nature of the media. <laughs> I don't know. Seems to me that Saul directed that message. Here's been this king who's inactive, hasn't done what God has called him to do, and yet he takes credit for the win. Second, <coughs> and the bigger issue here, is he offers these sacrifices that only Samuel was to offer. So we see him getting in front of, getting out of his own lane, and doing what only Samuel was supposed to do, and Samuel comes back and calls him foolish over it. So we see that definitely this young king still has some flaws. Next, I think we see that Jonathan created a really sticky situation. I mean, Saul didn't know that Jonathan was going to do that, right? Saul appointed Jonathan to lead these troops, and he went rogue on him and he just took these soldiers to go and over overthrow this garrison of philistines and now we see the product of that (coughs) israel finds itself in a most dire circumstance now i mean that's not saul's fault right jonathan did this next what was samuel supposed to do samuel gets to the place where the prophet had appointed him to go he waits the appointed amount of time and he doesn't show up right so saul's waiting there and he's like what am I supposed to do? All these men are here. Many of them are leaving. <coughs> Some of them are even hopping back over the Jordan to get away completely. <coughs> Sorry, guys. What is he supposed to do? Put yourself in his sandals for a minute, okay? I'm assuming he was wearing sandals. Put yourself in that situation. You're a king over these men. You're in a, you're, your army is already woefully outnumbered. And many of them are starting to leave. They're trembling. What would you do? Right? Take matters into your own hands. That's what you do. Right? Let's go. I still want God's blessing. Let's do this thing. It also seems like Samuel's response is a little over the top, doesn't it? I mean, what did Saul do? Offer the offering? I mean, wasn't he still trying to please God? (coughs) Certainly that's what Saul himself says. I'm just trying to please the Lord. I'm, I'm trying to seek the blessing. I wanted the blessing of God before we go out into this battle. Samuel, you should have been there on time, man. Like, why are you being so harsh with Saul? Doesn't it seem that way? Finally, Saul is left with a real mess now. Saul is left to clean this whole thing up, this mess that Jonathan created by taking the the, the troops into battle, this this mess that really kind of Samuel has created. Had he come at the appointed time, they wouldn't have lost so many men, and now we've got woefully few men, even fewer men than we had, and, and the army is there, and now we're sitting here with a bunch of farm equipment, and now I've got this mess to clean up. Shouldn't we feel bad for Saul? Our natural inclination might be to feel that way through this chapter. But not when we see it through spiritual eyes. Let's walk back through it with spiritual eyes together. (coughs) First, how should we view these characters in the story? Even before we get into the story itself, how should we view these characters if we're viewing it through spiritual eyes? Well, first, who is Saul? If you'll think back to chapter 9... 
when he is appointed king. In fact, turn back over there. Flip back over to 9, verse 16. Let's just read this. We'll see two elements to this. And as you're turning in your Bible, that gives me a chance to take a drink of water. Works both ways. Mutually beneficial, they say, right? Look at verse 16, chapter 9. Tomorrow about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin. This is the Lord speaking to Samuel. And you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. Notice the next line there. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. There are two things in this verse that remind us of who Saul is. Number one, he is the prince. Do you remember what Gerald had to say about this? It's interesting that he uses the term prince and not king. God was not going to appoint a king. He is king. And whatever king would lead Israel well would be a king that recognized him as king. He was the prince. This is who Saul was supposed to be. He was to be an authority over Israel, but only an authority under the authority of God. That's who Saul was supposed to be. And by the way, he was he was he was made. He was put into this role graciously. Saul didn't do a thing to earn this. Okay, so that's the first thing we see. The second thing we see is that he is raised up for a specific purpose. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. Saul was to be the deliverer from the hand of the Philistines. This is who Saul was to be. So when we open this chapter, understanding that when Samuel gave this commission to Saul, when he appointed him king, that he was to do this immediately. And now here we are a year later and Saul has not done anything. He's not overcome the garrison. He's not gone to the appointed place to wait for Samuel, to wait for instructions from the Lord over a year. We need to understand that. What about the state of the people, these Israelite people? Well, first, we we remember that they had rejected God. They had rejected God as king. They had decided they wanted to be like every other nation. When they were going up against these other nations, there was something in them that was impressed by these other kings that led their nations into battle. And there was something in that that they wanted for themselves. And often God would lead them into battle in terribly unorthodox ways. Why? Because God wanted them to behold him. But time after time, they just tried to make God into their mascot. We want to conduct the battle the same way that the other nations are conducting the battle. God, we just want you to bless it. Let me just tell you, those kind of negotiations with God don't work out. But we still try to have them, don't we? It's as if the people were saying this, but God, you don't understand the circumstances and situations that's going on right now around us. You see, we don't need to do what you're calling us to do. That seems far too passive. No, we need leadership like they have leadership. We need somebody to be nasty like they're nasty. We need somebody to be tough like they're tough. That's the person that we want leading us into battle. That's what will lead to victory. So they had rejected God as king. They wanted it their way, but they wanted God to continue to bless it. You see that? Verses 6 and 7, it says that they followed Saul trembling. Hey, Israel, here's your great champion that's a head taller than everybody else, and you're following him into battle, trembling. You see that? 
They're following him because he's trembling. He's inactive, but they're also trembling. It's a bad picture. Remember, Saul is the king that they, they wanted. Saul was the king that they wanted. Notice how Saul refers to the Israelites back in chapter 13. Back there in verse 3, after Jonathan has defeated the garrison, Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. I saw one commentator who pointed this out. I probably would have skipped right over this. But he said, that seems odd to us, or should seem odd, because the Israelites never referred to themselves as the Hebrews. And certainly a king of the Israelites would have never referred to his people as the Hebrews. And if that's not odd enough, just down a little bit further, the narrator narrator of the story refers to them as the Hebrews. Who was it that referred to the people of God as the Hebrews? It was the surrounding nations and their enemies. I believe that there's something highlighted here that we won't catch unless we unless, unless we use spiritual eyes. That Israel has lost its identity as the people of God. And now it's just as if we're having a running narrative of this story with the Hebrews and the Philistines. Wow. They had lost their identity so much. Their own king. Some people say that that Saul was intentionally mocking them, hoping to elicit more of a response to people. I don't know. But it strikes me when the the narrator of the story comes back and refers to them in the same way. What about the Philistines? How should we understand the the Philistines? Well, they always seemed to be a thorn in the side of Israel, didn't they? And there was always... An enormous number of them, right? I'm, I'm, I'm reading through the Old Testament and I'm seeing all of these encounters with the Philistines. It's almost like the Philistines are cockroaches, you know? You squash three of those things and ten others show up, right? Now, I'm not trying to demean them as people, just an illustration. Like, they're always, like, where are they coming from? Like, even after Israel overcomes them in battle, all of a sudden they come back and it's like there's more of them. Right? There's always, it seems like, almost a supernatural number of them. I believe this. I believe that the Philistines were never a true threat to the people of God. Do you agree with that? With spiritual eyes, I believe that we ought to be able to say that the Philistines were never a true threat to the people of Israel. Why would I say that? Because they could not muster up a big enough army to overthrow them when they were following God. They were never a true threat. I do believe that they were God's instrument to teach the Israelites obedience. To teach the Israelites to behold God. The more they tried to engage you, the more you look to God, the more God moves in miraculous ways to win easy victories over an army that has outmatched you and outgunned you, the more that you do that, Israel, the more that you will realize that I am real and that you are my people and I am your God. I believe the Philistines were an instrument by God to teach the people obedience. You know what's sad about it? They never learned the lesson. They never learned the lesson. And no matter how many times God proved faithful, They continued to try to engage the Philistines in their own way. Like beating your head up against the wall, isn't it? What about the heart of Saul's failure? How should we see that spiritually? We tend to think, 
what did he do that was such a big deal? He offered the sacrifice. He wants to entreat the, the favor of God, the blessing of God. Well, we need to understand that even at the opening of this story, that he is already living and ruling in disobedience during the entire thing. He did not enter into disobedience when he walked up to the author, off, uh, to the to the altar and offered the sacrifice. That's not when Saul sinned. He was living in sin. God had commanded him clearly to do something and he hadn't done it. And he gets angry that Samuel doesn't show up at the appointed time. Saul is an, he, he is a year and seven days late. He has not done what God has called him to do. And so Saul is living this whole thing in disobedience. It's not, we, we don't skip down to that point and say, okay, this is where Saul disobeys. His whole life is disobedience. His whole reign is disobedience. And he is not pointing the hearts of the people to God through his disobedience. You see, the essence of his sin was not offering the sacrifice. That was symptomatic of what was going on in his heart. That was the outflow Right. Whatever's inside will bubble up and come out. This came out of Saul's heart. It was indicative of Saul's heart posture. It was indicative of what Saul was looking to to trust. It was indicative of what Saul thought about who God was. And we know this because when we get to that portion of the story, what is it that Samuel says is his sin? He doesn't say you sinned. You're you're foolish because you offered the sacrifice. What does he say? You have not kept the command of the Lord your God. And he says it twice. What is Saul's sin? Not that he offered the sacrifice. That's the symptom. His sin is that he failed to believe God's word. He failed to do what God had commanded him to do. And on the surface, it may appear that Saul cared about pleasing God because he still offered. He could have just said, forget you, Samuel, let's take the troops into battle. He still wanted the blessing of God. It may appear that Saul cared about pleasing God. But catch this. He really shows that he doesn't regard God highly, uh, very highly at all. He actually proves that he really doesn't care much about him at all. You see, here's here's a question. How can one obey God if one does not first regard God? And when I say regard God, it's not the vision of God that we want. It's revering the God who has revealed himself to us. That's what obedience is. That's what it looks like to desire him. More than just the movement of his hand, we want him. Saul did not want him. He just wanted the movement of his hand. He just wanted him to make him successful in battle. Hello. This is Christianity in our day. This is what God laid me flat with at the beginning of this week. How often do you entreat me to bless you and your efforts and your things? How fervent are you to follow me? To deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me in the small things, day to day, moment to moment. You know what the truth is, Jason? God was saying to me, Is that you say you follow me, but most of the time you do what you want to do. This was Saul. What was God's original plan? Listen to this. Two parts. Saul, take care of the Philistine garrison that is encroached on my people. That's the first one. Number two, go then after that to Gilgal 
and wait for me to tell you what the Lord would have you to do. Now, why would Samuel want him to have a quick victory over the Philistines and then to come meet him in Gilgal specifically? Why do you think that would be? Look back in your Bible to the verses just preceding. Gilgal is the place where the events of last week's sermon took place, where there was a renewal among the people in their covenant relationship with God. I want you to look back at verses 19 through 25. It says there, And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. What had, what had been Samuel's hope and God's intentions in giving those specific commands to Saul? Number one, he wanted Saul to see that God backs up his word. So you take troops into overtaking the garrison of the Philistines, and I will show you just how mighty my hand is. And immediately when that is over, I want you to congregate all the people again back at Gilgal. Why? To be reminded of the renewal that you experienced here, to be reminded of how great I am, to be reminded that you need to continue to behold me. Saul didn't either. And here we are a year later. One commentator writes this. He says, feel the weight of this, of of this as this episode presents it to us. To obey God for Saul was an extraordinary thing to ask considering the circumstances. Do you agree with that? Brothers and sisters, that's what faith is. Faith is not just doing what we want and praying that God will bless it and it will all turn out. But that is too often how we define faith. And that's not what faith is. Faith is action that has been aligned with the reality of God. That's what faith is. That when every natural inclination I have tells me to go in this direction because I believe because of my circumstances that that is what I must do to overcome the circumstances. God has called me to do this and I will choose this because it is the truth. That is faith. That is faith. And Saul needed to be modeling this for the people that he led, calling them to behold God. And the whole time he's waiting on Samuel, men are leaving. Saul certainly isn't pointing hearts to the God who is mighty to save. That is what faith is. Faith is not just a hoping it will all turn out well. It's action. It's action. 
It's a heart that's settled on the fact that what God has revealed is reality. And I will lay my life out on that no matter what it costs because that leads to life. That's what faith is. That's what faith is. Dale Davis writes, For Saul, sacrificial ritual was essential, but prophetic direction dispensable. Did you catch that? Sacrificial ritual, offering the offerings, was essential, but prophetic direction dispensable. I think Saul really thought that he was doing something at that altar. I wonder, speculation here, but I just wonder if there were any among his rank and file that were impressed by that. Finally, we got a guy who's going to roll up his sleeves and do some stuff. Finally, we got a guy who ain't going to put up with this prophet who's always telling us to do, do stuff that's crazy. You know, he had his time to get here. He's not here. Finally, we've got a leader who's going to roll his sleeves up and do stuff. And look, look, he's, he's asking for God's blessing. He must be a man of God. The sacrificial ritual was essential because he wanted God's blessing. The prophetic direction was dispensable because he really wasn't interested in following God. See, here's the truth. He seeks divine blessing for what he will do, but sees no need for divine guidance as to what he should do. Well, what do we see that God's purpose is here, especially in this exchange with Samuel? Samuel says, what have you done, Saul? There are echoes in that question. Do you hear them? It's God walking into the garden and saying, Adam, where are you? Adam, what have you done? It's God coming back, seeking out Cain as his brother's blood was crying up to him. And he says, Cain, what have you done? It's God going to Achan and saying, Achan, what have you done? You knew the command of God. Why have you kept some things for yourself? There's an echo in that question. What have you done? And I believe that in this question is still an act of mercy. Saul could have responded by saying, oh, my gosh, I have transgressed the law of God. I have sought his blessing without truly seeking him. Forgive me. I wonder how this would have played out if Saul had done that. But he didn't do that, did he? He lays out this lengthy excuse where he justifies himself. And we see Samuel's response to Saul's excuse, and it is harsh. It is hard. Hughes writes this. He says, the foolishness of disobeying God cannot be seen by weighing the circumstances. This is why we're doing this this morning. If we just read the story and try to unpack Saul's sin and aggression without seeing it through spiritual eyes, we won't truly understand it. But when we look through it and spiritualize with an understanding of who God is, we see how eternally egregious Saul's sin was. He goes on to say it is in the light of God's promise. What was his promise? I will lead you into victory. This is the enduring promise of the covenant God to his people. I will lead you into victory. It is in the light of God's promise that the utter foolishness of Saul's disobedience must be seen. And indeed, it is there that we see it. You see, here's the truth. God's main objective was not for his people to muster enough strength and boldness to defeat their enemy. God's objective was for his people to see and know 
him. The Philistines were never the threat. And they began to fear the non-threat rather than fearing the God that who was, who was their God. So what does Samuel say? He says that there is going to come another, and this one is going to be a man after God's own heart. Literally, it can read there, a man according to his own heart. He's not speaking of David. He's not saying that God has found one whose heart is after God. He is saying that God will choose a king according to his own heart. All of this is an act of pure grace. David deserves the kingship no more than Saul does. Neither one of them do. This is an act of grace by God. You have had your king. You see how that works out. Now that king has been rejected. God is going to choose a king after his own heart. And we see a glimpse of Israel's new situation in the final few verses of this passage. And it is a dire situation. It is a seemingly hopeless situation. Saul is now left with 600 men with farm equipment against this sea of soldiers from the Philistines. You know what's the truth? If we're looking at this through spiritual eyes, the Philistines may have always seemed to have the upper hand over the Israelites, but listen to this, lean into this. The Philistines never had the upper hand on God. Ever. God was never in a struggle with the Philistines. Never in a struggle with Israel's enemies. Never in a struggle. The Philistines never had the upper hand on God. And even in the dire, the dire situation that we see here, they didn't have the upper hand then. All Israel needed to do was behold God. Trust God. Follow God. And indeed, that's what we're going to see. We're going to see what God does through one man against the Philistines in the next chapter. This is how God moves. God doesn't intend His people to reflect the world in the way that we engage in spiritual battles, brothers and sisters. He does not. He wants us to behold Him. Do we think that God is up there wringing His hands right now over abortion, thinking, oh man, if my people would just get motivated. Do you think that God is wringing His hands over the sexual revolution that's unpacking? It's, oh my gosh, if the people of God would just get up enough courage to battle... What does God desire for us? He desires for us to follow Him with our whole hearts. We don't have to ask God, what do you want me to do? He has revealed it. Do we know this? Do we follow this? Sometimes it's, it's easier. We, I love how in our culture we talk about how, how much it costs us to get on Facebook and get loud about something. It don't cost us nothing. For most of us, we have a bunch of people that follow us that agree with us anyway. That doesn't cost us. It costs me in real time daily to deny myself and take up my cross and follow him. You know what it costs me to do? Loving my enemies. That costs. You know what costs? Denying my selfishness. That's what costs. You know what costs? Sacrificially loving. That's what costs. You know what costs? Sacrificially giving. That's what costs. What costs? Yielding to the Spirit so that His fruit might be produced through me. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. How many of those marks mark the church today? 
It doesn't matter how loud we are in our religious ritual. It matters our faithfulness now, in this moment. And God wins. God's victorious. Behold Him. He is faithful. He is good. He is mighty. Behold Him. Two key questions this morning as we close. Number one, what is the true essence of faith? What is the true essence of faith? I can't see you, so I'm going to put those up so I can see you. The true essence of faith is not believing in God. The true essence of faith is believing God. God has pounded me with that the past couple of weeks. The true essence of faith is not believing in God. There's a whole lot of people in our culture that claim to believe in God. And you know what? A lot of times they will use that proclamation to justify actions that are out of step with what God has revealed because it's necessary. Faith is not defined by believing in God. Faith is defined by believing God. Believing that what he says is true. Following him, seeking him. Praying that the Spirit would do the work of sanctification within me to align me with the reality of God and his purposes, his will. That's what faith is. And it is active. It's not passive. It is active. Active. Guys, listen. The people of God got stirred up to believe God and walk in him. Let me tell you something about what he would do. Number two, then, is something that I've been dealing with ever since one of the first, well, really early in our Sunday school study through the Old Testament. Man, that's been good. I don't know how many of you have, been, have enjoyed that, but, man, the Lord has just really worked in my life through that study. But I remember back in the study of Joshua, and the question is, what is the, what is the true essence of faith? What, then, is true spiritual courage? What then is true spiritual courage? And I want to submit to you, it's not what Saul did at the altar. That's not spiritual courage. Think back to Joshua and the refrain that we hear in the opening chapters of Joshua, even before that, where Joshua is commissioned to be strong and courageous. Then the people are commissioned to be strong and courageous. You remember this? And there's that refrain over and over, be strong and courageous. I remember growing up, I heard so many talks about being strong and courageous. That was, uh, you know, that was one of the famous youth group talk topics. You know, when speakers come in, go to these conferences, and people talk about being strong and courageous. Every single time I've ever heard that spoken about, it's always in the context of battle. Joshua, you're going to have to be strong and courageous because you're going into this place, and you're going to have to lead these people against these other great military. Uh, these other great militaries and nations, and God is going to overcome them through you, you're going to be strong and courageous in battle. May I submit to you that when I walked through this passage this year and studied to teach Sunday school, I was confronted with the reality that that's not at all what is in mind there. See, here's the deal. The people wanted Joshua to lead them into battle. Does it take courage to go into battle, by the way? Absolutely it does. But that's not what was being exhorted to Joshua when he was told to be strong and courageous. Here is what I think it means. 
Joshua, you're going to have to be strong and courageous to believe God and take him at his word. Because this people that you lead, they're constantly going to want to pull you off of that path to do what they demand and what they think is best. And your own heart is going to lead you astray and your own pride thinking that you know what is best. Be strong and courageous, Joshua. When you're the only one standing on God's word, when you're the only one calling people to faithfulness, when you're the only one doing what I have revealed, then you are going to have to be strong and courageous. I think there's a word here for us that connects to that. Saul needed to be strong and courageous, not to stand up and get into another person's lane and offer an offering so that God would bless them in battle. Saul needed to be strong and courageous and stand up and call the army to behold God. Saul needed to be strong and courageous from day one to immediately go and do what God had called him to do. Brothers and sisters, we need to be strong and courageous every day when we are confronted with the reality of sin to not follow that and give our bodies to it, but instead choose to live in God's will through the power of the spirit. That's being strong and courageous. And that's the kind of strength and courage that we need. In order to exercise faith. And that's not what we see in the life of this foolish king. Some applications for us this morning. The first one. I've got four of them. The God of the heavens is absolutely sovereign. Say that again. I feel like there should be some more amens on that. The God of the heavens is absolutely sovereign. He is absolutely omnipotent. He is absolutely faithful. What God has said he will do, he does. Amen? He is absolutely omnipotent, which just doesn't mean, doesn't just mean he is all powerful. He is all powerful to do what he wills to do. His plan is unthwarted. There's nothing we can do to thwart it. Nothing we can do to upset it. He is absolute in those ways. Do you believe that? Not do you believe in that. Do you believe that? Is your life lived in accordance with that? By the way, he is, you know where he is right now? Sitting on his throne. He ain't pacing. He ain't wringing his hands. He ain't anxious. He's sitting. Paul calls our attention to him in Colossians 3. To look, to see that our new reality is right there with Christ. He's right beside him. Number two then. God has called us to faithful obedience to what he has said. We don't have to wait for God to reveal his will to us. Do we know this? He has revealed it. And it is through living in accordance with what he has revealed, that he begins to open up his will to us as individuals. God has called us to faithful obedience to what he has said. Number three, God has called us to be people of faith, whatever the circumstances. Our circumstances don't give us excuse to abandon God's word. Our circumstances do not give us license to abandon the character of Christ. God has called us to be people of faith, whatever the circumstances. 
And we are his people. We are set apart and distinct. We don't act like the world acts. And part of the way that we respond is what reveals God to them, which is their needest, their greatest need is not for us to overcome them in whatever fight we're in, but for them to behold God too. That's their greatest need. Number four, look not to Saul for salvation. That's ultimately why this chapter is here. Look not to Saul for salvation and deliverance, but look to Jesus. Saul was unwilling to suffer day by day in laying down his own agenda to pursue knowing God for the purpose of following God. He was not willing to do that. But listen to the contrast of Jesus in Hebrews 5. 7 through 9 says this, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Listen to what verse 8 says. Although he was a son... He learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Look to Jesus today. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The Bible tells us that when we do that, the sin that so easily entangles our feet will fall away and we will be able to run with endurance the race he has set before us. We are called to be people of faith. And in order to do that, we're going to need spiritual strength and courage. What's the first step towards that? Behold Him. Let's pray together. I thank You for Your Word today. Your Word is challenging to us. It should be. Because we are sinful. And Lord, the truth is, You are doing this work of alignment in our hearts through the Spirit. But until that day, we will always live out of alignment. And so as we fix our eyes on you, we we, we come to be more and more so. So God, help us to fix our eyes there. God, help us to behold you. Lord, I think that maybe the best thing that some of us can do in light of what we've talked about this morning is turn off some of the voices that control our ears and our hearts and start to look more to your word. God, we are people that are captivated by everything around us and we look at reading your word and abiding in it as a weariness. God, forgive us for that. God, help us to see you there. Help us to not be so racked with anxiety and anger because our hearts are centered on the reality that you are sovereign and good. God, help us to most want to know you more than anything else. And we know your word tells us that only happens as we grow in holiness. So God, help us to pursue holiness. And help us to put sin to death because sin is the obstruction of holiness. God, help us to desire to know you. Help us to do that together, God. What a beautiful gift the church is. God, help us to not be foolish. God, help us to be faithful. Help us now as we respond, as we sing together, God. May you be big in our hearts and in our minds. We love you today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.